Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that I will be in conversation with the brilliant author and broadcaster Candice Brathwaite at The Lyric in Soho on the 1st of November, talking all about the themes of this podcast and more. You can book tickets at fane.co.uk forward slash Pandora. The vast majority of people carrying knives are not there to just randomly hurt other people. Of course not. There are deep rooted issues as to why they feel that they need to carry one why they feel that they have little other choice. Some of these young people, the key question is, why have they not got education and employment opportunities? Why is it that they're they're not actually in the middle of the day at work or at school? And why do they not feel that they've got a huge amount to lose? You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring the ins and outs of sex, self-care and sadness and lobbing big questions at my guests like, could a four-day work week ever really take off? Why is society getting lonelier? And what would a fair justice system look like? This is a podcast that asks what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Is the law biased? Alexandra Wilson is a criminal and family law barrister, the founder of Black Women in Law, and the author of Black and White, a young barrister's story of race and class in a broken justice system. In September of last year, a tweet Alex wrote about being mistaken for a defendant three times in one day went viral. What does it say about the justice system in the UK, asked Alex, that someone young, female and black couldn't possibly be a barrister? I spoke to Alex in late August, where we discussed the bar's diversity and access problem, why stop and search doesn't work, the over-representation of black people in prisons and what that does to young black boys growing up, and the effect that increasing closures of free community spaces and libraries has on knife crime. Plus, she drops lots of little archaic nuggets about being a barrister, such as how a wig tin costs £300. I so hope you enjoy this conversation. I start by asking Alex, What is the biggest myth about the justice system in the UK? The biggest myth in the criminal justice system in the UK is that people are treated as though they're innocent before they're found guilty. We have a system that holds people in custody for long periods of time before anyone ever gets round to hearing their trial. It used to be about six months and that was the limit. But now, particularly because of coronavirus, it's extended way beyond that for many people. God, that's so interesting. And yet I'm not surprised here it's been affected by the pandemic because I suppose the tentacles go so much further than many of us consider. The court is meant to be somewhere free of bias. But last year, a tweet you posted about being mistaken for being a defendant in court rather than a barrister three times in the same day, made news headlines. As a young black female barrister with an Essex accent, those people assumed you could not be a barrister. How did you feel that day and how do you feel about it now? I genuinely felt exhausted. I was fed up of having to prove that I was as good as everyone else or that I deserved to be there as much as everyone else did. The thing that separated me from all my other colleagues in court that day was clearly the colour of my skin. There were other women, there were other young people. And I was there as a a black woman and the only black woman in court, the only black person, full stop. And it really did just leave me feeling tired. The first time it happened, I was irritated. The second time, I think I got a bit upset. And then the, the third time, I genuinely was just absolutely exhausted and what added to that exhaustion was the fact that I couldn't deal with it there and then. I couldn't sit down and think, okay, how how do I best deal with this situation? What's the, 
the next thing I need to do. I had a client to represent and that client's interests had to come first. So I had to put my feelings to the side, pack them into a box and go and represent my client to the best of my ability and focus wholeheartedly on that. And then come out of that hearing and address the fact that actually what had happened that morning wasn't okay. And that led to my tweet. I think now, almost a year later, it's it's interesting to kind of look back and think, has much changed since then? Do I think that that situation could happen again? Do I think that people have radically changed the, the court system so that those experiences aren't likely to happen again? And the truthful answer is no, I don't think enough has changed because ultimately the the statistics haven't changed enough you know black people are still being disproportionately arrested and fed through the system and by fed through the system i mean you know charged sent to court disproportionately sentenced and so people are still looking at black people entering court buildings differently to the white people that are entering because they assume that they're there because they're in trouble your identities as a woman but also as a black woman as a young black woman as a young black woman with not with a posh accent, have given you the opportunity to connect with clients that would feel like they had nothing to relate to, to that 50-year-old male, white, intimidating, old barrister, that you can win their trust and ultimately win cases. But even if you've got someone that isn't really interested in how diverse uh, the bar is, the fact that it's you're winning cases and that your identity is not a hindrance, but a help in the justice system it's a bit like when you hear that women who are on boards, those boards make 30% more money for the company. Like that's surely evidence of how profitable having people that aren't all the same is. There definitely is a business case. And I think sometimes it takes outline in the business case for diversity, for people to kind of actually take you seriously and to talk about diversity in a serious way rather than thinking this is a you know a kind of thing they have to check off their list as part of their yearly training you know oh, oh I've listened to a lecture on diversity and equality you know it's actually important that people see why it's so important and I completely agree there's a huge business case for it particularly in our job where we will often get requests, you know, often barristers get specific requests for them to represent someone. So often I'll get a solicitor who's never instructed me before, write to my clerks and say, our client has asked for Alexandra. They've seen some of the work she's been doing, or they've, you know, they've seen my, some of my profiles and often, you know, it, it is because they see me as someone who's relatable. They are going through something that's really difficult. They want someone who they feel that they're going to have something in common with, which actually in our profession is quite hard to find. Um, and that's, you know, there are lots of brilliant barristers. That's not to take away from the the skill of these barristers because there are lots of brilliant barristers regardless of what background, you know, whether they are white, middle-class old men, whether they are white, middle-class young men, whether they are, you know, young black women at the end of the day there are a lot of very talented people at the bar it's a very competitive industry and so regardless of your background there's a certain element of you know people have had to work really hard and they have to be you know they have to have had the academic qualifications to get into you know to get called to the bar but sometimes you just need that that little extra sometimes it's important to recognize that actually people are looking for the more personable side of a person they're looking for those softer char characteristics because we're doing a job that involves representing people we really are the voice of people in some of the most difficult circumstances sometimes it might be them lose being at risk of losing their children or losing their children it might be without being at all dramatic them risking losing their liberty that our clients are very often sent to prison or we act to try and either stop that or minimize how long they go to prison for. But that is a, probably the, the most significant thing that can happen to someone. And so trust is so, so crucial. And it has a knock-on effect. You know, if you work in a chambers where you are working alongside a mix of people, people will have more faith in you just purely by virtue of you working in such such a mixed environment. It's, you know, what I, I'm very clear on is that I'm not saying, you know, every black person is going to want a black barrister because that's not the case. They're going to want the best barrister. But 
are they going to have more faith in someone who's working in a chambers where they see people that look like them and you know who are working in a mixed environment than they are going to have in someone who's working in an environment which is wholly white and they're looking at that chambers thinking these people do not look anything like me how on earth can they understand what i've gone through what you know anything about me it's not even what i've gone through anything about me and my identity so there's a knock-on effect for people regardless as long as there's a a mixed environment i think yeah i mean it does sound harsh to kind of call it the business case the business side of things and there's a business case for diversity but like i said i think sometimes it does come to 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 highlighting that for people relatability is also extremely subjective not everyone relates to the same type of person or set of identities i think for a long time there have been there has been a disconnect between yeah defendants and the people that represent them and that particularly because we have such a short period of time before going into a case to talk to that client and meet that client you know in the vast majority of our cases we we meet them for the first hearing an hour sometimes but often less than an hour before the hearing and i do genuinely wonder what happened <laughs> however many years ago when there really was absolutely you know hardly any black people at the bar much fewer women because there were there would have certainly been circumstances where people would have found it really difficult to speak to someone who they found so different from them about something that was so intimate to them and you know so, you know not all crimes are hard what we kind of see as like the the really hardened criminal cases sometimes they are very intimate sometimes it, you'll have a case where someone's been accused of domestic abuse, for example, and they're going to be questioned about very intimate parts of their life, including their sex life, very often their sex life. And they, of course, need to feel comfortable talking about that. There may be racially motivated crimes where people are trying to explain things. You know, nowadays we have a much better understanding of microaggressions. And I say we being the general population, but for a long time, people didn't really understand what those sort of phrases meant. I think some people still would not fully understand um more subtle types of racism and that is going to be much easier when you you have someone who's representing you who understands and like i say that doesn't have to be a black person but that is undoubtedly going to be easier if the person representing you works with black people you know has a has a strong working relationship with black people is not just in a, a white environment all of the time I think you bring a similarly nuanced approach to how you're looking at access. The training for a barrister known as a pupillage uh, is exhausting and demanding, which I would imagine it to be, but it's also incredibly expensive, meaning that many students just simply aren't able to do the training without a grant, which you say you got a grant. How much of a deterrent is that, do you think, to diversity at the bar? I do think that the price of training to be a barrister is a huge deterrent, particularly for people from backgrounds where they they may have less money than others. Um, and that's going to, of course, affect the makeup of the bar. So the not only, of course, do you have to have your degree, which for some people, um, me included, <laughs> means that you accumulate a huge amount of student debt. But then after your degree, you do the bar professional training course, which is extremely expensive. For me, it was almost £20,000. And I was fortunate enough to have a scholarship, which covered a large part of that, um, at, which which was absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I, I genuinely wouldn't have been able to do the course without that. But for some people, you know, the scholarships are limited. And so some people don't get scholarships and people have to, a, a lot of people get out bank loans, people borrow money from people, they work, you know, for a couple of years before doing the course to save up. And the difficulty with that is it's still such a risky profession. So you can do that course and still not get pupillage at the end. And pupillages are our training year where you learn on the job. It's kind of like an apprenticeship. But they, they're super competitive. You know, pupillage places are very, very competitive. And so you can spend a huge amount of money on the training course. And then when it comes to pupillage, not be offered a pupillage or it might take, you know, I think your course is valid for about five or six years. And so, and that's because it takes people often five or six years to find a pupillage. And so it really is a very, very risky 
career path to follow and for people who might be from lower you know people who are from lower socioeconomic backgrounds or backgrounds where they they don't have the luxury of just being able to have their parents money that they can sit on um whilst they're deciding you know whether they're going to apply for the bar for another year or you know next year they and they they have sometimes they have pressure whether it's from their family or even their friendship groups to get a job and get settled in a career it's really difficult for those people um and I think that's one of the biggest reasons that there's such a class issue at the bar we really don't properly represent society we are disproportionately middle upper class as as a profession and you know those costs don't even stop when it gets to pupillage you get into your like I say the apprenticeship type year and when you're a pupil you're expected to buy your wig and gown the wig is about 600 pounds the gowns to I think it's about 250 um you know these prices add up the tin that holds your wig is about just under 300 pounds and that's a tin I to hold that. a wig I did, I did not understand that although you did even admit that you did really love that tin and oh I did. were really thrilled when you got that tin <laughs> so the tin does obviously hold a special well it's a status symbol I guess isn't it it is I, I I am fully aware it's a bit ridiculous and I think that every time I tell people how expensive this tin is I you know I try and rationalize it in my own head as it will last me my whole career but it is ridiculous it's extortionate but it is lovely I have to say it is really lovely um and that's the thing with this profession you know there will of course not everyone has to buy a tin and I've heard some barristers say you know they wrap their wigs up in their gown and sort of put it into their bag but again it's there's a there's a of course a difference in attitudes for those people who don't feel like they belong and want to make sure that they have all the parts so that they they feel like they belong and it's very easy when you're comfortable in an environment to sort of cut things out of course if you yeah, feel like cherry you belong pick. at the bar exactly if you feel that you belong at the bar you can cherry pick you can say actually I'm so comfortable here I don't need the wig tin to prove it whereas when you come from a background where you don't you know you're not from a background of you know having a family of lawyers and loads of people who've you know you're the fifth generation of your family who's gone who's been called to the English bar you know actually you, you don't want anyone to look at you and think oh you know they're stuffing their wig into their their gown they don't have a or you know putting it in a biscuit tin rather than, than a proper tin you don't want to draw that unnecessary attention to yourself so I think that the there is the the profession reinforces class differences without even trying to because it's so in, it's so embedded in the bar that you know you will spend money to be in this profession you will buy these extortionate ridiculous things and that's just expected another issue that you had to grapple with when you were deciding to train to be a barrister you found that some family and friends were worried that you were becoming part of the system and this links mm -hmm. back to a tragedy in your youth doesn't it yeah when i when i first told my family and friends that i wanted to be a barrister and particularly the issue was that i wanted to prosecute as well as defend many of my family members particularly you know younger cousins and my brothers they they felt that i was kind of essentially you know betraying our community that you know i was being i was i was kind of joining the system you know the the system that oppresses us and by us i mean black people the system that for years has you know wrongly um well disproportionately targeted young black people young black boys in particular um meant that you know we've got black people are hugely overrepresented in prisons and I think that my you know a lot of my family and friends couldn't understand why I would want to be a part of that why would I want to be part of a system that disproportionately affects like our community and it was it it was really interesting because you know the the main thing that got me thinking about criminal justice in the very first place the thing that really sparked my whole interest in criminal law and becoming a barrister was the murder of my friend um who you know I some also call a cousin he was a close family friend and we often say friend cousin interchangeably um but he you know his murder he was killed when we were 
we were just 17 and that for for me and for my family particularly my cousin who was really close to him it, it completely changed our our lives and you know it changed our perspective on things because I think so many of us couldn't understand it we genuinely couldn't understand how someone could be in an area they didn't know the people who killed him didn't know him they were just out to seek revenge for their friend having been killed and it was really difficult to be honest to understand particularly at that age it was really difficult to understand how that had resulted in him being murdered how someone had made that or, or two people had made that decision to kill him based purely on seeing another young black boy and wanting to get revenge for their friend having been killed that was really really difficult to deal with and so I think my family members when I said you know I want to be um part of the kind of the the system that in that I wanted to you know defend and prosecute there were so many questions you know part of it was you'll be defending people like that you'll be defending people who have committed horrific crimes like that or but but equally you know you'll be prosecuting you'll be part of the reason that so many you know the black the black community is has been so negatively affected by a disproportionate number of black people being imprisoned and that of course has taken its toll on the black community and so either way you're going to be a bad person <laughs> essentially um and for me you know i had those conversations i had those conversations back when i first thought about being a barrister but i've had those conversations more recently in the last couple of years and I genuinely am of the view that the only way we can change things is by having more black people within, you know, in inverted commas, the system, having more black lawyers, having more black police officers, having more black prison staff so that people's perceptions are changed. It goes back to, you know, my experience of being in the that magistrate's court where I was constantly mistaken for a defendant. If you're going to over-criminalise black people, if when you see black people, you're going to treat them as though they're criminals, it's going to have an effect on how black people see themselves, on how other white people see black people or other, doesn't even have to be white people. I think that's an important point to make. You know, sometimes the people reinforcing those stereotypes might be another minority group, which is why, you know, that phrase BAME is not always helpful. Um, but I, my view was that unless I'm there at the forefront trying to change perceptions, then how can I sit and complain about it? And that's why, you know, even now I give a, a large amount of my time trying to build up other groups of people to enter our profession. I mentor people. I set up black women in law because I think that that's the way we change things by by being here at the forefront. And then by extending your platform for others to join you, which it sounds like you do a lot of. I always think that success is something that you build, you know, as a community. It's not, there's not just one successful person. What's the point? You know, how do you think, or what's the point of just one person being successful? It doesn't, you know, it's very difficult for one person to make change on their own. And why take all of that burden when you can have success all around you. Why not help other people be successful too? Or, you know, maybe even be more successful. Um, I think that that I've had people help me. You know, I I had mentors myself who were absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I probably, I may not be where I am today without them. And, you know, it's only right that I help other people and it, it just creates so much more success. You know, I just think it's it's wonderful to think that if each person helps someone else, it kind of has that butterfly effect of, you know, helping so many other people. I think it should be mandatory amongst people in stable careers who will inevitably have wisdom and contacts to share. I could not agree more. I think that not enough people feel that mentoring's super important basically i think that people think it's a nice luxury to be able to mentor if you have the time i think that it doesn't have to be as formal as some people think it needs to be it doesn't have to be you know of course it can be you know i think that's part of the misunderstanding is if yeah. you're not adopt you're not adopting someone and having dinner with them every day mm -hmm. it can just be that you go for a coffee once a month and you Absolutely. email every couple of weeks and also crucially i think it's the, doing the introductions yeah. Yeah. Because that's the thing that can take years, isn't it? It's, yeah. that, it's that access. It's that connection. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. I completely agree. And that's, I think if more people understood that mentoring could be that informal relationship, I think more people would mentor. Um, I think, you know, my mentors were never formal. I didn't meet them every Friday for a, you know, a sit down session and we'd, we'd assess all my goals and write my kind of five year plan. It wasn't that at all. It was very much like if I needed help with something, I knew I could call them. I think if we create a culture of mentoring, I think if we can foster that, I think if we can encourage every person to just find a little bit of time to help someone else it kind of goes back to this idea of just creating so many more successful people you know just being able to to help someone who is maybe not in the you know even now I would I can't say that I'm not privileged now you know I I certainly think that it, it's really interesting for me to kind of <laughs> kind of reflect now at where I am and and think actually I have to accept that I do have some privilege now for sure. I I went to, you know, Oxford University, I had a brilliant education. I'm now a barrister. Um, I'm in a, you know, a, a pretty good profession and I am the person that I would have looked to before and thought, oh my God, I want to be, I want to be where she is. And so I should reach down and be like, here, you know, this is how I did it. And that's why it's one of the reasons I wanted to share my story. It really was a really key motivating factor for me was, being able to share my story with others so that they could see how to you know how to a grow from like what was a very negative experience but kind of and and by that I mean my uh cousin die or being murdered you know that was life-changing in the in what I thought was going to be the worst way you know when I was younger I thought I just genuinely couldn't come to terms with what had happened and it caused so much upset but to have honored his life and I genuinely think like you know his life has motivated me to be where I am today and to for to be able to tell that story you know for a long time I didn't talk about it I was it wasn't something that I spoke openly about to other people I knew that there would you know it wouldn't be many people in my profession who'd had similar experiences but now to know that actually I've shared that story and there's so many young people that have reached out to me and said actually I've been through something like that you know it might be different but I've been through this situation and it was really difficult and you've made me think that actually I can use this to motivate me to pursue the you know the 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 bar and for me that there's nothing there is no greater satisfaction than knowing that other people now feel that they can pursue their dreams without sounding like really dramatic but there really isn't you know a better feeling than knowing that my story or my you know me speaking to someone or helping someone has meant that they're now gonna come and pursue this profession like it's incredible that's the the best feeling of it all And now a quick word from my sponsor, Zen Move, an online nationwide law firm that puts the well-being of its clients first. Moving house is stressful. For those lucky enough to be getting on the property ladder, there's a lot to get your head round. Contracts and deadlines and oodles of legal jargon. So why not eliminate that stress with Zen Move and their positive approach to conveyancing? The key is in the name. Their smooth, friendly and clutter-free approach will ensure that no one tears their hair out or forgets to feed the cat while wading through paperwork. Head over to zenmove.co.uk to get a quote and to discuss your move the Zen way. Last year, the MP Dawn Butler spoke out about the issues with stop and search after she was stopped by the police for no reason. And government stats from 2020 are stark. The Met conducts 51 stop and searches per 1,000 black people in a year compared to 11 stops per 1,000 people, per 1,000 white people. Can you tell me a little bit about your views on stop and search, which you write about in the book, and what you advocate as a safer, fairer, more sustainable alternative i think stop and search disproportionately targets black people um for me there's the statistics show it but also there have been some brilliant reports by amnesty international um on what the the met police the the database that the met police use called the gang matrix which is essentially a database where they have a a number of people um a number of young people 
names recorded on this database where they say that they are gang nominals you know they are affiliated with gangs and a, a huge number of those on the gang matrix are black unsurprisingly in fact Sadiq Khan mayor of London did a review in February this year and removed I think it was about a third of those names from the database and those the, the people on that database you know the, the third that he removed Basically, there was no reason for them to even be on that database. Um, and a huge number of the people on that database are are black. They're almost all boys. Um, and it, it really does line up with the stop and search rates. You know, it, it, when you've got a disproportionate number of black people who are associated with being in a gang, according to the Met Police, um, and then police are going out looking for people who fit that description and stopping and searching those people, of course, they're going to be stopping and searching a disproportionate number of black people. And the reason I mentioned the Amnesty International report is because what it flags is that instead of actually using markers of crime to identify these, you know, these gang nominals, the, the people they say are um, involved in gangs, what they're actually using is cultural markers. And so they're often using things like the way people are dressed or the way people are speaking as markers of being affiliated with a gang, which is not only ridiculous, but also is going to disproportionately affect groups. And it's clear that the Met Police, particularly the cultural markers that they are using are those with the black community. And so it's, until that changes, until the Met Police can honestly reflect on what they what they are using to even you know to assess whether they're going to stop and search someone, I I really can't see stop and search changing. I think that they really need to, you know, year after year, Amnesty International have been doing the same report. Year after year, we've been talking about the statistics of how disproportionately of how disproportionate um, stop and search is against you know black people versus white people and yet very little changes and you know there have also been reports on the on how little of a difference stop and search even makes um and so it's not as though we've got a clear system that translates into the criminal justice system and that you know it's really effective and stop and search completely changes crime it, it has very little bearing what would i say is an alternative because of course i'm not in denial about the fact that you know the, there clearly is a huge issue with young people and it's predominantly young people um carrying knives i think that that is you know i have first-hand knowledge of that as i you know as i talked about in my book you know my my cousin was killed he was killed by someone who was carrying a knife so knife crime is a a huge problem and particularly in um cities you know, London, of course, has has a has a knife crime issue. Knife crime issue. I think what we need to start doing, if we actually are serious about tackling it, is looking at why these young people are carrying the knives, rather than just trying to kind of have the the remedy to the fact that they, you know, that well, not, not even the remedy, rather than dealing with the the aftermath of them carrying a knife. So rather than stopping and searching people who are already carrying a knife, we should be looking at how to prevent these young people from carrying a knife in the first place it just seems to me that the the intervention's too late it's coming at a time when you know p these young people are already on the street with their knives clearly sentences are not, are not deterring people you know they're already quite severe sentences custodial sentences for knives that's not stopping people we need to work out why young people are feeling that even though there's a high risk of them going to prison a very high risk of them going to prison why do they still feel that they need to carry a knife? And a lot of it is because they are, you know, a, a lot of young people are in situations that they, and I say this, you know, based on many of the clients that I've had, where they feel terrified. They feel that if they don't have something on them, they are going to be a victim of an attack. If they don't, you know, if they can't, demonstrate that they are protecting themselves and sometimes you know of course you're gonna of course of course you're gonna have the children I say children because a lot of them are children um who are there to brag you know they're there to brag to their friends but a lot of the case it is because they're genuinely scared and that's because in a lot of these cities there are kids who are living in environments where they are 
you know, I know County Lines has been spoken about um, a huge amount in the press, but they are being targeted by older people who are exploiting them. You know, there were younger kids being given knives by older people who are saying, you know, you need to go and deal drugs on this corner. And, you know, if anyone comes and troubles you, here's a weapon to protect yourself. You know, that's happened to a large number of my clients. Um, there are people who, you know, a lot of a lot of the, the knife crime is actually fueled by drug disputes, you know, people being on other people's territories, people feeling that you're you're selling where I'm supposed to be selling. And it's not just random, you know, people, these are human beings. They're not just going to randomly you know, the vast majority of people carrying knives are not there to just randomly hurt other people. Of course not. There are deep rooted issues as to why they feel that they need to carry one, why they feel that they have little other choice. You know, some of these young people, the the key question is why have they not got, you know, education and employment opportunities? Why is it that they're, they're not actually in the middle of the day at work or at school? And, you know, why do they not feel that they've got a huge amount to lose? And I, I, we could have this conversation honestly forever because, I mean, there were so many related issues. You know, the the education system failing a number of young black boys, you know, black Caribbeans constantly fall at the, the bottom of our education system. I know white working class boys and Bangladeshi boys also do. But, you know, focusing very specifically here on on black boys, you know, black Caribbean boys consistently do. You know, you can look again, as I've already said, the the prison population has a huge overrepresentation of black people already. So there's already a message that's coming out saying, you know, black people are criminals. We've got a huge number of black people in prison. Black people are disproportionately searched. Of course, that's going to have an impact on young black people going out who, you know, my brothers, for example, every time they went out, there was a certain age when they were teenagers where they, my brother, when he used to go to work, used to constantly get stopped and searched on the way to work. And he worked in, you know, an IT business and it was dressed in a suit and would just constantly get stopped by the police. And they'd always give the same, you know, oh, you, you fit the description. Um, and so I think when you take into consideration, you know, all of these, these factors I've kind of briefly touched on, um, what it points to is actually needing to find a solution to why people are carrying them, not this, the the approach that I think the government have been taking for too long, which is, you know, they're carrying them. Let's try and take as many of them as we can. Do you think part of it, um, part of the increase as well, could be the increased enclosure of free shared spaces and places, whether that's libraries, community centers, um, sports clubs. And it seems so counterproductive because often those places are shut because there's just not enough local funding or they're shut because they're deemed not to be safe. But without those safe places to go, you're leaving teenagers who maybe don't really have a home that they can spend a huge amount of time in, either because that's not a particularly safe place or because it's just filled with lots of family members. So instead they are on the street they've got nowhere else to go and so then they look to other forms of protection i think that the closure of things like youth clubs sports centers community venues that young people can go to and you know hang out with their friends and do fun things that i'm going to make myself sound old here that teenagers do you know <laughs> i don't know i don't know what fun things teenagers do now but um you know of course that has a an absolutely huge impact on the amount of kids that that are walking the streets essentially you know hanging out with their friends in the streets there are lots of people who for whatever reason home is not a place that they would hang out and you know that could be overcrowding in their home it could be that they're you know they're witnessing domestic violence at home or that their their home environment's very unsafe it could be that they are genuinely just very alone at home that they they might have parents or a parent, maybe in a single parent family, where their parent is working really, really hard to make ends meet and is often out of the home working. You know, a lot of jobs, as we know, are, are very, have very, very long shifts. And so their parents may not be able to supervise them in a way that some other people may be able to 
pay for supervision um, through clubs, for example, through paying for a music lesson or paying for a swimming lessons where you know your ch- you know where your child is, you know that they've got an adult watching over them. Some people don't have that privilege. And if you close the kind of free, inclusive venues for young people, community clubs where they might offer football or music that is affordable or or free of course that's going to lead to more children wanting to hang out with their friends and sometimes those friends are going to be a bad influence sometimes it may not even be that their friends are bad influences it might just be that they are as I said vulnerable to exploitation it might be that they're in an environment you know instead of being safely in a home or safely in a club um like as in like a community club not a nightclub but a teenager um as a teenager they are on the streets, very vulnerable to older people, and it is generally older people, exploiting them, who see that they're alone, who see that they don't really have much to do, offer them the opportunity of making a bit of money, which you know is often how many young people get involved in these sort of situations. Then being at the end of and end of the day, feeling that they there's nothing else that they can do. They're having their responsibility sometimes for their parents, sometimes for younger siblings. It's a very, you know, it's a, it's a vicious cycle for a lot of people who don't have the luxury of distancing themselves from that environment that is either their home or the street and they're weighing up dangers of, of each or cons of benefits and, you know, pros and cons of each. So I think it can be really, really difficult and, I, and no, nowhere near enough resources have been put into addressing that all we see is more closures of things like community centers and youth clubs as I said right at the beginning very few resources being put into this area and until we see that I don't I don't I genuinely don't understand how we're expecting to see a a real change also the irony of these places being shut for cost-cutting measures when it actually costs infinitely more to employ police to do shifts on the streets in these areas that are filled with bored teenagers who have nowhere safe to go because that costs infinitely more than accessing a gym or a village hall that's not actually being used at in the evenings speaking of young people there's a particularly moving case that you describe of Layla a teenage girl who's being exploited by a drug ring to sell drugs for them and she requests an electronic tag as something protective rather than punitive were you shocked when you learned of Layla's case when I represented the the person in my book who I call Layla who asked to be put on an electronic tag I was genuinely devastated after I'd got over the kind of confusion, you know, and I understood why she wanted this electronic tag, you know, for so that she physically could not go out of her house, so that she she could tell the people who were exploiting her that if she was out past a certain time, the police would come and get her, which is, of course, not in their interests because they, they were trying to use her to commit crimes on their behalf. Um it was it was absolutely heartbreaking to see a young person there who you know of course an electronic tag i don't i hadn't before met anyone who wanted to be an electronic tag normally i'm trying to persuade my clients that it's worth having the electronic tag so that they don't go to prison you know it's a it's actually you know the the only time you get people willing is because they they think okay this is the way to avoid being in custody not when someone is for you know on the outside anyway seemingly free um it was yeah it was just it was really really difficult to kind of understand how bad her situation must have been to want that measure to literally want to be kept in her house so many young people in her situation genuinely feel that there is no one they can go to because the people who exploit them tell them that if they are to report it to um to adults or to you know the police their parents the bad things will happen to them or bad things will happen to their family and because these young people are often already victims of bad things you know quite often the people exploiting them have already done awful things to them they of course believe that and so for the only way out for my client to think that it was to 
to have you know what a restriction of liberty to to literally have an electronic tag attached to her leg where if she went out after a certain time the police would attend her house is is there's no other word other than just absolutely devastating i often think about what justice means in a modern society via social media things are tried in the court of public opinion long before they reach criminal court or even when they do reach a criminal court it's the kind of social media element of it that people keep most up to date with whether or not that's Britney Spears's conservatorship hearing or Amber Heard and Johnny Depp their divorce um and then the domestic abuse claims around that was a trial by fans based on emotion and reputation rather than evidence and due process what do you think the consequence of and the future of quote unquote mob justice is i think that to actively comment and share allegations as opposed as opposed to proven crimes means that many people cannot have a fair trial um unlike in the us we do not vet our jurors you know we do not go through the the jury and assess whether or not they are capable of giving the person a fair trial we do not check how much media coverage they've paid attention to we do not we do not you know prior to them already you know being jurors and on the case we don't they don't have to have ignored the media uh you know that has that they would have of course seen on television and newspapers and stuff of course the judge will tell them in the specific case you know do, do not go and conduct google research only pay attention to the the facts that you hear during this trial but it's inevitable with big cases that people will of course be influenced by what they've already seen in the news it's human nature it's very it's a very very difficult task to disregard things that you've heard and things that you've seen and so i think it does prevent a fair trial my view is and i know that this is not a, a view um a view shared by all lawyers but my view is certainly that people's names should not be published um, prior to conviction i can see that there's a benefit in certain cases where more victims come forward and you know this is particularly common in historic sex offense cases where someone particularly with celebrities or you know very notable people where a, a person comes forward the allegations are published and then far more people come forward after that and of course that's a real positive in the sense that those victims may never have otherwise got justice and to put that in a very vague term but you know never have otherwise been part of a witnesses to a prosecution case and may never that person may never have had a trial for those offenses committed but for me that is outweighed and it is very difficult it is extremely difficult but it is outweighed by the fact that the prejudice that comes with a trial by media public opinion it's not just the media it's public opinion um the the prejudice that comes with that for me is is overwhelming it it's and it's unfair it you know it's it really links to me saying that one of the biggest myths of the british justice system the criminal justice system or the english sorry i should say not even british the english justice system is that we don't have the principle is meant to be innocent until proven guilty and if the public have already decided that you've committed a crime and the jury are made up of that public how can someone possibly say that they they have a completely fair trial and that they are being treated as though they're innocent until the prosecution has proved their guilt i think it's a i think it's really dangerous and i i personally as i said yeah i i think that people's names should not be published you know in the same way that a lot of victims get anonymity i think defendants should be afforded that that too until there has been a conviction I wanted to end by asking you, what would a fair legal system look like to you? Having a legal system that properly represents the population that it serves. I think there are so many important advantages of having barristers, solicitors that represent their clients, you know, and not just represent in the literal sense of going to court and representing them, but actually are made up 
of the the same you know whether that's ethnic groups genders um you know, disability is a huge one that's often overlooked. Um, sexual orientation. There are the issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis touch all aspects of people's lives. And so it's important that our profession reflects that even j- just for the reason that we have a good understanding of those issues, that we're a, a diverse group of people that can properly represent our clients and be the voice of our clients. I think that's super important, but also it's not just the barristers and solicitors it's the judges. I think it's so important that the people making the decisions, it's all very well us representing our clients and making these excellent submissions to judges or magistrates. But if those people are all from one particular background, of course, that's going to have a negative, a negative effect on justice in our, in our um, legal system. And so I think it's incredibly important that the judiciary and, you know, the judiciary including magistrates as well so lay magistrates represents our population we you know at the moment i think less than two percent of judges are black um which is a very you know i think see actually even less than one percent it doesn't mean that the white you can't have white judges of course you can have white judges but they'll be working in an environment with other judges who are from a mix of backgrounds and everyone you know in the same way that someone who's middle class can benefit from working with someone who's working class or someone who is identifies as straight can benefit from working with someone who identifies somewhere else on on the lgbtq plus spectrum you know i think it's so beneficial for us to be mixing with people from a wide diverse range of backgrounds and it will massively improve our understanding of the world around us which is crucial for a judge that is absolutely crucial so i think it can make lead to better decision making is ultimately what i'm saying there but the other the other crucial benefit is that it gives people faith in the system it goes back to what i was saying before about us having trust in our legal representatives people also need to have trust in the actual system and seeing a much more diverse bench you know a much more diverse judiciary and and magistrates will give people that added faith in the system when they are coming to have their trial they're not thinking that the system is already against them which is what i think many people think at the moment so that would be the most seeing a, a system that properly reflects the people that you know that we represent that are going through our system for me would be the best way to make our legal system fairer Thank you so much, Alex, for coming on to Doing It Right. You've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Doing It Right. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. And if you'd like, you can buy my book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? From any bookshop you like, Independent Always Better, Try Hive if you're shopping online, in which I discuss lots more of the myths and anxieties of modern life.